Bless you. Afternoon, folks. I've got what is, tell me, um, what is the definition of optimism? For me, this weekend, it was a 50-year-old man thinking that he could still mix it with the young people. And it is the reason I am sitting on this stool right now. Because uh, I was playing tag and I pulled a hamstring. Nice, nice. So, so it, apart from that, the weekend went really well, just to report. Um, uh, just to report. But that's why I'm sitting down rather than striding around. It's wonderful to be with you. What an incredible passage, eh? As, as, as I heard it again there, I've read it many times in the course of the last month, but as I heard it again there, I thought, we should make a movie out of this. It's incredible, the kind of the threats of death and that, that incredible final scene. And, um, and just, I need to actually put you at ease just now, because I think as you hear that passage, you might be thinking, well, what sort of things are we going to do this afternoon? And I just wanted to encourage you, you know, we could, we, we, you know, there are many things that we could talk about, but we're not planning a ministry time where we're hoping that people will be rolling around naked on the floor. Just, so, oh, oh, disappointment, disappointment from some people. Would actually that make it more attractive? Um, we're, not, we're not planning that. We could talk about the result of sin in the life of Saul, like the, the toxic impact of a life of sinning that has led him to this place that even when... He says, no, 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 we're not going to kill David. He, he ends up wanting to again because it's so enshrined in him. That, that long-term sin that can grab us. We're not going to talk about the challenge of leadership transition, that liminal space, the time in between leadership, which often Satan exploits. And we've seen that in church and NGO and business history, haven't we? We could talk about speaking truth to Paul. Jonathan doing that amazing job of so bravely going and speaking and advocating for David to his father and the importance of that and the importance of courage for that. We could talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. We could talk about the corrosive nature of jealousy. We could talk about the fact that David wasn't Saul's enemy, but Saul clearly saw him in that part of his head. And who are the people that we see in that part of our head when they're actually not our enemies? They're perhaps our brothers and sisters. We could talk about what happened at the end, this incredible disarming. Saul wanted to seize David but he ended up being seized by God. We could talk about all these things, but stories of David and Saul and Jonathan as we've gone through 1 Samuel has been that this, there is this call on the life of David, but it is clear that there is a lot at stake. And it is clear that the evil one and those who are working for him at times don't want that to happen. There is a destiny for David, but it feels like there's stuff in the way and stopping him, preventing him from getting to that destiny. Yeah. And we've seen that and we've seen how he's responded. And in this specific situation, he's been specifically attacked. There is a specific attack on his life. And if you're sitting here this afternoon as a normal human being, I am sure there are times in your life when you have felt attacked, when you have felt thwarted. When you have known that there's something coming up, there's a thing that you have to do, there's a destiny, there's a calling, but you feel thwarted by a sickness, by a dysfunctional relationship, by logistics just not working on to those attacks. How do we respond to those attacks? And the summary that I thought of as I looked at this, I thought, do you know what? It's incredible. It is incredible that David, in light of these attacks just went back to be with Saul, knowing what he knew. He just went back to be with him and kept on doing what he did musically. 
So my question to us this afternoon is that when we are attacked, when we, when we are in a place of challenge, do we run for the hills and think, actually, this is all far too hard? Do we run away from that destiny? Do we run away from that calling? Or do we grab a sword and fight and take on that person, actually take on the person rather than the spirit behind it? Do we fight? Do we take up a sword in the way that David did not in this situation? And do we fight and get aggressive and add to the lack of peace in the situation? Are we often doing that? Or when we are faced with conflict, instead of grabbing a sword, do we grab a guitar? Because that's what David did. Instead of grabbing a sword, do we grab a guitar? And it's very easy for somebody who plays guitar to see that as a good thing. <laughs> that might not be a pleasant thought for any of the rest of you, because you might think, I do not want to grab a guitar. But in this situation, David did what he knew, and he knew what blessed Saul and what had blessed Saul for years. He grabbed a guitar, and he soothed the situation, and yet still another spear came at him. He didn't run. He grabbed a guitar, and he was present, and he stood in the place, rooted where he knew his destiny could come to, to, to fruition. Hi. It struck me, how on earth did David respond with the grace that he responded with? To be able to respond with a guitar, not a sword. To be able to stand and not run away. It was because of four really important allies that he had. His first ally was obviously Jonathan. That close friend. That closer than close friend who knew him so well. Who knew him, his motives and could therefore vouch for him. In our lives, who are those close friends that are so close that they know our motivation, that they will stand with us, they will drop anything for us, they will stand in front of a king and vouch for us? Number two, he had the privilege of this incredible spouse, Michal, who even though the father, her father, was the man coming to kill him, you know, can you imagine the hate of Saul in the last chapter of the John by killing more people than him and obviously being a better musician, obviously being a better warrior than Saul. Saul is getting even so, so, so jealous. And then worse than that, his daughter falls for him. How bad could it get for an angry, jealous father? How bad could it get? Yet she, Michal, is stuck in the middle of this situation and David and her have this relationship that seems strong and she vouches for him and she stands up for him and she bravely, as you can see in the story, basically shops whatever she's heard in the royal courts, whatever she's heard about what her father is intending to do to kill David. She passes on. Her loyalty is to him and he tell, she tells him what's happening and he is able to get away. That is incredible, the strength and the power of a loyal spouse, a loyal life partner has given him the strength to get through. Number three, where does David go? He goes to Samuel. He goes to the elder, the prophet, his spiritual leader, his mentor, you might say. Do we have those people who in times of challenge we can run to? Who would we say is in spiritual authority over us? Who would we say is that person? You know, we all know 
and we're all very thankful for John and Joe leading this church, but there's, you know, probably about 400 of us on the books now. Isn't that right, John? About 400 of us now? Something like that. It's not realistic for all of us <laughs> to be contacting them all the time. Not really fair either. Who are the people that we respect? Are there networks that we are part of that people are leading that we can go to? We can say, help. Are there other people in our lives who are elders, who are allies? And then number four, can you think who the fourth ally is? Yeah. But the fourth ally is slightly hidden in this story because we don't actually hear and we don't actually see what happens in the secret place for David. When Michal comes to him and says, in the morning, Saul's men are coming to kill you, what we don't know until later is what David does that night. And what David does that night is writes Psalm 59. That's when this psalm was written, and I'm going to read it to you right now. Psalm 59 says this. These are the words of somebody whose life is on the line. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers. This is not just abstract. This is real. And save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done nothing wrong, yet they are ready to attend like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are as sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. God will go before me and will not let me gloat over those who slander me, but do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, uproot them and bring them down for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride for the curses and lies they utter. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they're no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. You are my fortress, God on whom I can rely. How often do our prayers in times of trouble when we are under attack sound like that? not incredible? The faith, but the reality of it is as well. The reality of that, the lamenting, the crying out, the saying, God, this is, this is shocking. This is real. I hate this, but God, I trust in you that in the morning, he's told they're coming in the morning, but he comes against that specifically, and he says, but I will sing of your strength in the morning. He says, even if they are here on the doorstep, I will sing of your strength in the morning. What a profound, profound thing. So David, rather than running away, which is what is tempting to do, and sometimes our prayers can actually be just running away. Sometimes our, our worship can be running away. Sometimes we can be ignoring the reality of the situations in our lives. Sometimes, sometimes prayer and worship can be escapism if we don't bring the truth of what is going on in our lives to God in prayer and worship. Sometimes it can be escapism, just going around the issues. 
Sometimes we can just get stuck in the issue so they don't even get to God. We're so obsessed by the stuff that's attacking us, and we're so obsessed by the stuff that we're struggling with that we don't even manage to get to that place of worship, to get to that place of praise. We just get stuck in the issue. But what David does is he takes, he takes the issue, he takes the circumstance and brings it to God. That's lament. That's true worship. Neither trying to sidestep it, neither getting stuck in it, but bringing it to God. In the glory of Psalm 59 that has then been spoken and sung by people through all of history. From the most real church. Why do we struggle to know that actually we are in need of these allies? Why often do we run away, like I have done in my life, run away from the calling, run away from the destiny that God might have for us because it's too hard, or because we get taken back and we get hit by the things that come in charge at us? And I wonder if it's because increasingly, as a society, we are conditioned to think that it actually all depends on us, to be self-sufficient, to be those who control our own destiny rather than the way we are wired, the way we are made, is to need each other, is to need these four allies. We won't all have all of them all of the time. But David realizes that the only reason he can stand strong in this situation is because of these allies. This tight friend, this spouse, stopped believing. We are so conditioned to believe that we are growing up to try and become adults so that we don't need anybody else anymore, to be self-sufficient. You know, you look at the actual definition of who a human being is. Tertullian, the early Christian writer, he was the first one who first coined the phrase Trinity. He said Trinitas, Trinity. He was the first person who coined that. And he came up with the name. And you know the first person to actually talk about a person? Persons were mentioned for the first time when he talked about the Trinity for the first time. That's the first time the word person was invented when he was talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word person didn't exist before the idea of the Trinity. How mad is that? The word person did not exist before the idea of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we are made in cells to make I need a PA connection. I think it's all right. Is that it's just coming in and out? All right. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, great. The idea of a person is not defined by our current Western individualism, which says we are here to be individuals. The idea of the perfect life is to have so much stuff that you don't need anybody else to have so much resource that I don't need to go to anybody else. But it's a lie. And we experience sometimes in the challenging moments of our life that we can't do without other people. But I wonder, subliminally, do we still believe somewhere in our wiring, somewhere in our training from our families or our culture, that actually that we are meant to be able to do without other people? I see some heads nodding. <laughs> there is something in our wiring that even though we realize at our weakest moments, we know we can't do without people, we still somehow think that we're meant to be able to do without other people. 
And that's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We are designed for relationship. We are designed for surrender. We're not designed to be people who are impressing others by our high capacity and our high performance and our high ability. We are designed for surrender. Yet we spend so much of our time trying to prove our worth to our friends. Even in this room, we spend our time trying to prove our worth and prove how resourceful we are, how much capacity we have, how expert we might be at certain things. When actually we're designed for surrender, we're designed to need each other, we're designed to cry out to one another. I realized this so badly when I first moved from Northern Ireland over to Luton. And I was with this wonderful group of folks in a church in Luton. We were doing like a small house church thing. We were trying to share life. And I was being led by these wonderful folks. But to be honest, I was really struggling because people were saying to me, Andy, you know, why, why don't you want to, you're, you're traveling around the country. Why don't you want to have dinner? We, we're trying to have dinner once a week so that we can build community. And I'm going like, well, I'm doing this other stuff. No, no, but we're, we're hoping that you're committed to this community. So we're going to do dinner once a week. And I'm going like, but, but I'm, not, I'm not here. And they're going, but, but could you choose to be here so that we can commit to each other to have dinner once? And I'm going like, what? But, no, but I'm doing my thing. It just didn't, it didn't compute. And when people said to me, here, you see when you spoke to that young person last week, um, I think maybe you were a bit, I think you maybe, you know, I don't know, was that, did you speak to them the best way possible? Were you a bit rude in how you spoke to them, a bit abrupt? And I was like, hang on. Hang on, my, my faith is my private possession. And uh, what, what right do you have to be speaking into uh, how I live my life and how I do my faith? I came from a very sort of quite conservative Northern Irish place of like, you know, if, you, if you insult somebody's faith, if you, if you suggest even slightly that somebody's faith or somebody's practice is not on, on the message, then you're actually basically saying, well, you're not a Christian. Because <laughs> it's like perfection or nothing, you know? And, and so I, I had to learn the hard way that actually we are designed to not be little islands, that we are designed to need each other, and we're designed to cry out and surrender to one another. I wonder if some of us tonight need to hear from a God, an experience of God who loves us so much and has so much for us that we can be freed from a sense of self-reliance are freed from trying to build ourselves to a point where all, the only thing we really believe in is ourselves. Because Descartes, the famous philosopher, said, I think, therefore I am. And the truth is, we only have our own thoughts. We don't have anybody else's thoughts. We only have our own thoughts. And therefore, we are far more real to ourselves than anybody else. And so we can get so locked inside our own heads, so deeply locked into them. there's a, a, a very sad reality that one of the main reasons we have an epidemic of anxiety in our world is that the sense of connectedness and community has been eroded. And we like to think it hasn't affected us too, but it has. We will never have enough to be safe or satisfied, no matter how well we do for ourselves. We'll never make it. And we know deep within us that that self-satisfaction and self-securing will not actually secure us. And if we get lost in an endless rat race of achievement, we will never get to that point of knowing the abundance of God's mercy.
Self-sufficiency and attempts at it lead to anxiety. Because deep down we know we'll never make it. We'll never have enough. We'll never be safe enough. We'll never have enough. But what David understood, what the trust, the deep trust he had in his God showed, that instead of a theology of scarcity that drives us to anxiety and drives us to a market and drives us into competition with each other, he had a theology of abundance, that his God had enough and that he could relax. And his job was just to stand in that place with his four allies and that his destiny in God would take place. But it's because he was planted so firmly and enmeshed in those relationships so deeply. I wonder tonight, are there some of us that, as somebody prayed before the service, need to just peek out from behind the wall that we've built around our private life, that we know we've been trying to be self-sufficient, that we know that feels safer to be behind that wall, but actually maybe we need to look out and look over and see some other people who are also struggling and also feel under attack and to come alongside those folks. We are designed for surrender. We are designed, it's in our DNA. We are made in the image of God, designed to need, not just to be a handy thing to have a life partner around, not just a handy thing. We're designed to need other people. I wonder if as a sign of that, you'd be up for being prayed for this evening. Because that's one way of showing very clearly that you're not self-sufficient. And making it clear, not just to your head and your family here, but to yourself as you step forward and as are prepared to look a bit silly. We're not going to ask anybody to roll around naked on the ground like Saul. But when you cry out in honesty, I wonder if some of us need to take a step forward and cry out to God about some of the painful situations, some of the issues and obstructions that we feel like there's been to our destiny, to what we feel we've been called to, to come and cry out about that and do that in the presence and with the support of some other friends here who are probably facing similar things, but who are gagging to stand with you and do that. Part of the self-sufficiency lie that invades our Western culture means that the ministry time in a church context has become the place where, oh, it's nice that the struggling people have somewhere to go, isn't it? And we'll sit content in our seat, happy, happily content, middle class, happily satisfied, saying, oh, we don't, we don't need that stuff. That's a lie we're believing about how we're actually made. We are designed for surrender. And we are at our best and our most effective for the kingdom. As David discovered, when we are surrendering, when we are not responding to tough stuff by either running away or grabbing a sword and making it worse, but grabbing a guitar to come like Psalm 59, in worship, complaint, and praise and prayer 
and to work that through with a friend. I wonder, would you stand with me? Can the uh, prayer and ministry team come, come forward? Whoever's here tonight from the team, that would be brilliant. Great. Louise and Ian and Jackie are here. Wonderful. It's a pretty profound thing that happens at the end of that chapter, that people couldn't even walk nearby to the place of prophecy where the Spirit was moving without being affected by it, without having to just lay down their agenda and be quiet or roll around on the floor. And it stopped David being killed as well, which is pretty good. Saul couldn't move. Are you up for taking a step, a bold, a brave step in the direction of that sort of space? be great if this space was just full of people who are making that step forward, who are wanting to be in that place, because that is the place, that is the place where we discover our allies. That is the place where we discover that this is not a journey to be done on our own. If we think we're okay, we're not okay. If we think we're okay, we're not okay. This is not the place for people who are struggling. This is the place for human beings, persons made in the image of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are designed to be part of this thing here. And you might be here this evening thinking this is all a bit new to me. If so, whoever you come and talk to, just tell them that and they will be really kind, and they will not do anything, and they will not say anything that, that you don't understand. They will explain it to you. Let me pray. God, we don't know what's going to happen here, and that's part of the point. As self-sufficient people who like to control the future and like to control all the variables, we want to know what's going to happen. We only want to engage in something when we can walk forward and we know what response we're going to get. We know we're going to get a healing. We know we're going to get a word. We know we're going to get a sort of a warm, fuzzy, feel-good. God, that's not what this is. Forgive us for wanting to be in control of your power. Forgive us for wanting to be in control of our lives. We step away and believe in your theology of abundance that you have more than enough and that we need to lay down our self-sufficiency. So, Lord, we come. Lord, we come. Lord, I come. I don't know what's going to happen. And that's part of the point. We don't want to control you. We don't want to control this. God, come, my ears back. This is the moment to come. Come forward now if you want to come. Come if you want to just find out what's going to happen. What might happen when you just poke your head over the wall to see what might happen. Come poke your head over the wall.